I want to welcome you back this evening and tell you that uh, Sunday night is a time when you hear and see a lot of things first. Uh, Tonight was the first time I ever heard an audible sigh from the audience, mostly parents of young children, as they learned that there would be no children's training. Oh, so uh, that was the first. We are on Sunday nights talking about God's amazing grace, and we're trying to look at individual stories of individuals and groups of people where God bestowed his grace and maybe some lessons that we can learn from that. And so we are uh, endeavoring, kind of going through, tonight will be the last Old Testament lesson, and then the rest of the year will be in the New Testament. And uh, hopefully it's been some good for you, obviously, the the Old Testament taking a larger portion of our book, about two-thirds. And as we proceed through the Bible, we're going to hit the last part of it here in the last part of the year. So hang in there. Keep on and uh, don't give up. Uh, Have you ever met someone really, really stubborn? I don't know, maybe you married that person. I'm not sure. Their elbow's flying this morning. Um, the, the truth is, we all have a degree of stubbornness within us. Uh, and some people are stubborn about everything and obstinate about everything. Some people are just stubborn about little things. Have you ever been stubborn towards God? God asked you to do something here and you knew you needed to do it, but you weren't doing it, you weren't being obedient, you were being reluctant and unyielding, and your heart is what the scripture might call hard. If you've ever known someone who's been really stubborn, or maybe perhaps you yourself, shock of all shocks, has, has been stubborn, tonight's lesson is for you. We're going to look at the story of a very godly man who should have not been as stubborn as he was. Uh, But one of the, in my opinion, one of the funniest Old Testament prophets uh, in the Bible, a man by the name of Jonah. Turn to the book of Jonah. It's a short book. We're not going to read it in its entirety. We're going to give you an overview. Uh, Joseph, first of all, is the son of Amittai. Uh, He is, uh, as we said, a minor prophet, which means nothing more. As we said last week, we talked about Isaiah. A major prophet means he has a large book of prophecy and a large part of the Bible. And a minor prophet means he has very little. Okay? Jonah was the son of Amittai and probably well known through a whole lot of VBSs and camps. Um, we focus on the great fish, but really if you pay real close attention, it's about a lot, a lot more than that. Uh, where was Jonah from? Second uh, Kings chapter 14, verse 25. I know a Sunday night crowd likes to dig around a little bit. If you, if you peruse through the kings, nestled in chapter 14, verse 25, is this word. Uh, he was one, speaking of Jeroboam, uh, he was one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, which we already said, the prophet from gath Hefer. So that's where Jonah was from. And he was called to go to a wicked, worldly city known as Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up 
before me. Uh, What was uh, Jonah's primary job as a prophet was that he was a prophet to Israel, to the ten northern tribes. Uh, When did this happen? When did this book take place? Uh, There's a little typo on the slide here. It's in the 8th century. That would be 8th century before Jesus, not after um, the 8th century is uh, in, in the history of Israel was a relatively peaceful time, uh, which was not always the case. In fact, the name Jonah, the, 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 the name of the minor prophet, means it dove, which has been universally and across a lot of time a symbol of peace. Why is this book happening? What's, what's significant about it other than this unusual story of a stubborn, obstinate prophet who uh, had a whale of a tale to tell. Sorry, that was bad. Throw it out there. What's significant is that Jesus himself used his story to point toward the story. If you remember this from Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 29 and following. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. This is their Jesus warming up to the crowd. It asked for a miraculous sign, but I tell you, none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this, <clears throat> this generation, and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus uses... Uh, this obscure prophet in this uh, unusual story to point to something very big. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second, but but we need to understand that some people kind of just skip over the story of Jonah as if that's just child's plays, that that's just biblical fairy tales. It never really happened. It's just some sort of symbolism or a metaphor or something of that nature, and, and we don't take it literally. Of course, it has this meaning or that meaning. And, well, we'll get into the addressing that and our view of Holy Scripture. Speaking of facts, uh, we, we come to this point where we go, really? Really? Did this really happen? Uh, it's, it's a problem because <clears throat> some people who consider their, themselves very intellectual cannot fathom certain things being able to occur and one of those is the story of the great fish eating a man, a man living inside the fish for three days and being spit out and survived to tell the story. It doesn't seem logical or rational. Could this have happened? Well, the first, the first answer that, to that is yes, it certainly could have. This is a picture of a modern day, actually, uh, I think it's a whale shark is what I found out. And I did my research to make sure this wasn't a Photoshop viral hoax kind of thing. Um, but this is the picture of a, of a diver, uh, obviously another diver is taking the picture of a whale shark that is, is about ready to enjoy a little snack there. Uh, he did not eat that diver. Uh, would, the next logical question is, would he have survived? Well, we don't know the answer to that one. The, the, the shark didn't eat him, but could he have? 
Well, I have no doubt personally that God could have allowed him to survive and made it possible. And, of course, there are all sorts of things that we think are true that the more understanding we have, uh, the more we learn that we were wrong. There was a time in history when we thought the world was flat. I realize that belief is sort of coming back in vogue again for some odd reason. Uh, But we got a little perspective. We took a step back. We looked farther out in the universe, and we figured, hey, you know what? Seems like we're not on a flat piece of earth. There was one time when we thought this old marble was the center of the solar system and perhaps the universe. A man named Galileo Galilei looked far out, farther out. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm watching everything and I don't think we're at the center. I don't think the sun revolves around us. I think it's the opposite. So when people say, well, it's science, it's science, it's settled. Science simply means knowledge. Human knowledge. And human knowledge is always evolving in our understanding. There are things that we think differently about now. Several hundred years ago, if you got very sick, they would bring you in and they would bleed you. They wanted to get all the bad blood out of you. Of course, the scriptures tell us clearly that the life of a person, of a creature, is in the blood. But that was science. That was settled science back at one point in human history. And then all of a sudden we figured out, hey, those people aren't surviving very long. Maybe we ought to quit that. So we we need to understand that science is nothing more than human wisdom and human understanding. And that's always changing. God's truth never changes. Our understanding of it certainly is limited and not all uh, that his is. Here's the big thing. If this, if this story, if Jonah's chap, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 didn't happen, if it's allegory, it's metaphor, it was something figurative, if, if it didn't happen, then the, we have a bigger problem, and that's this. Jesus was a liar, or Jesus was a fool. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and following. <clears throat> I told you Jesus referred to Jonah more than one occasion. He did. Here's what Jesus said about Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and following. And some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we, see, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. <clears throat> verse 39. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was Three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. And so we understand this is very similar to the passage in Luke, but if Jonah is not true, then Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 said something that was untrue. He was a liar or a fool and easily duped and therefore not the son of God. So we need to understand that the story of Jonah is a little story with a big impact in the overall story of God. I said we're not going to go through the entire book, but let's do a brief recap for those of you who have been a while since you've been to a VBS. Uh, First chapter is where Jonah flees, which is hilarious just to try to imagine that itself, uh, flees from God. And God follows him. He tries to to flee from what God told him to do. And we'll show you how far he fled here in just a second. There's a great storm. Uh, Those aboard the the vessel, 
uh, made the decision at Jonah's behest that they should throw him over. They did. And he became fish food. Jonah ran away from God, which is never great, greatly wise if you're going to try it. Chapter 2, Jonah repents from inside the fish. He prays to the Lord. And, and rather what a, is a very sincere prayer. I mean, let's face it, if you get to the point where you are in the belly of a great fish after disobeying God, your prayer life drastically improves. And it did with Jonah. He realized he had messed up. And he pours out what is most of chapter 2 in this prayer. And, and after Jonah repents, the fish regurgitates. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then we go to chapter 3, where Jonah relents, and he does the thing which God had called him to do in the first place. Jonah relents, and the interesting thing is that Nineveh repents. Uh, you get the sense that Jonah is sort of, okay, if you're going to have giant fish eat me, I guess I'll go do what you asked me to do. But it's Nineveh that does the repenting. This great city, this very evil city that Jonah goes to preach against. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news of this reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust and issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is every preacher's great dream to have such a response to a sermon. I mean, this is something, and, and Jonah was not excited about the prospect of preaching to these people. As most any prophet or preacher probably would realize, going into a hostile audience, understanding this is generally a godless people, he didn't want to do it, he was reluctant. But when he did, the word of the Lord sunk deep and penetrated in the hearts of all the people, from the greatest to the least, even to the king himself. You want a wonderful example of revival Look very simply at Jonah chapter 3. What is Jonah's response to the great awakening of the Ninevites? Is it joy? Is it excitement? Is it enthusiasm? Is he he's now ready to go further preach to more Gentile cities? Absolutely not. Uh, Joseph gets a little attitude. Uh, Joseph. Jonah gets a little attitude and he begins to pout. Jonah mopes. And God decides to make a point in a hilarious fashion, using a little vine and a worm. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. As we read this short story, we learn some lessons about the runaway prophet that I want to cover just briefly. Number one, uh, there we go, the other way, thank you. 
was like, we're going, the sermon's going backwards and the people do not want that. They need it going forwards. <laughs> Jonah had several shortcomings. Uh, if you, if you ever have had to go through a ministry hiring process, let me tell you, it's not an easy thing to do. I've had to do it three times. And, uh, whew, because, because you, I mean, just the whole process is, I mean, usually it takes a weekend long. You're meeting lots of different people, and you're going through this process of everyone giving their opinion. You're looking at qualifications. You're looking at resume, experience, how well you know the person. Do you see them in this position? Whew. Now, if if you had to make a resume for Jonah, the prophet, whether or not you'd want to have him as your prophet, my guess is the answer to that would be no. If you look at the the book, just picking out some things here first, Jonah disobeyed God, which to me is a bad sign in a prophet. Jonah ran from God. He not only disobeyed God, he literally ran from God as far as he could to get away from what God had called him to do. He was self-centered. He was focused only on himself. He didn't care about Nineveh. He didn't care about the souls of the men and women there. Uh, he, he did pray to God, but only after God used an extraordinary, miraculous, amazing event where he found himself as seafood. He preached, but he preached sort of reluctantly because he had no other option. After the people repented, he got angry at God because they repented. He prayed to the Lord. This is chapter 4. <clears throat> oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I, I, I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding. You can almost feel the eyes rolling. How annoyed he is at God's grace and his compassion and his patience. Now, O oh Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah pouted at God. He argued with God. But, and here's the amazing thing about God, God still used Jonah in spite of Jonah. And sometimes in your life and in mine too, God's going to use you in spite of you. Jonah was super stubborn. I've already nailed that down. Um, he, he, and if you think about it, there's really no reason for him to be. He was called directly by God. And we all have the word of the Lord, but, but we have to use some, some wisdom and some discernment. You know, what, what job should I take? Is this the right path to go down? Is this the right thing to do? Should I live in this city or that? Oh, well, what is my purpose? We talked about work this morning. What's my calling? What's my vocation? Jonah had a word from the Lord. Hey, Jonah, go and preach to Nineveh. Clear. You know, unambiguous, God called Jonah to do something. He saw the miracles of God in the storm, in the fish. Uh, he saw the, the, the repentance of the Ninevites. He saw God working directly. He heard and talked to God. I don't know how many of us have wished that we could have a conversation where we could just not, not just hear and not just praying, but, but hear the, 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 the voice of God very distinctly and know exactly what we should do. He saw the revival 
of a godless people turned toward the Lord of heaven and earth. Jonah saw all of that, and his heart remained hard. Regardless of how God reveals himself to a person, that person still has to choose what kind of attitude and still has to choose whether or not they're going to have faith in God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make the path straight. We are called to have the same trust that Jonah did. Now, we may not have the exact same mission. My question is, do we have the exact same response that Jonah did? Are we reluctant? Are we fearful? Are we arguing with God what God clearly tells us to do? Jonah rebelled in such a a clear way When God said, go to Nineveh, here's what happened. Uh, Here's a visual of Jonah's initial response. We'll put this map up, okay? He's in Joppa, up here on the right. God says, go to Nineveh, which is just a little to the north. And, and, And Jonah goes exactly as far away from where God has called him to go as possible. Jonah seems to have the spiritual maturity of about a three year old. So far has he run away from God. There's one verse in the story that I want to focus on. In chapter 3, verse 10, is the verse. Um, When God saw what they did, this is speaking of the Ninevites here, and, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. You see, God gave Nineveh grace. He gave them far more than they deserved. They were wicked, all of them, from the greatest to the least. They were godless. They, they ignored God. They didn't listen to God. They really didn't care about God. And God knew they needed a preacher, a prophet, to tell them, hey, 40 more days, and that's it. You can't keep on living this way. And, and they respond in such an amazing way. God sends them a prophet. God listens to their prayers when they repent. He doesn't just turn a deaf ear. He listens to the prayers of the Ninevites and the king. And he showed them mercy. He relented. In, in a way, and this is so strange when you think about it. An entire Gentile city of godless men and women were more receptive to God's word than one of his called prophets from his own people. Isn't that just like... I mean, that could never happen today, right? I mean, that would never... I mean, we as God's people always... Do exactly what God says and never, never rebel, never, never passive aggressively sort of not do the thing which God's called. We never do that, do we? It's not like that. A story like this could ever happen today. I had a conversation in the foyer with a gentleman this morning who was telling me that God had put on his heart to reach out to his neighbors 
And so he's intentionally, purposely going to engage. This is a neighborhood he's lived in for a long time. But he doesn't want to see his neighbors go to hell. And so he's intentionally, purposely going to reach out into this very natural conversation, uh, but, but bring it to a point where he encourages them that, hey, if they're not attending a church, uh, to turn on, he's got little flyers or cards or something made up, and he's going to give these to his neighbors to encourage them to watch Know Your Bible. He's reaching people right where he is because he's absolutely convicted about the Great Commission is still the Great Commission. And that everywhere we go, whether it's halfway around the world or right next door, there are souls that God cares about. That's beautiful. That's that's convicting for me. I think, man, my neighbors, I'm worried about is Bermuda grass growing into mine, you know. And I think, man, I'm not much better than Jonah sitting right under here under a vine, enjoying the shade and getting mad when it rots. And God says, hey, there's a whole city It's going to hell. How dare you? It's convicting. May we not be like Jonah in that regard. And yet because of God's goodness and his mercy, God also gave Jonah more than he deserved. He heard Jonah's prayer. He gave Jonah a second chance, which he didn't have to do. And he put up with Jonah's sour attitude. To the very end of the book, we never even even see Jonah change his heart or his mind. Uh, the last time we hear Jonah speak is verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you have right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. That's the last word we hear from Jonah. Isn't that terrible? It's a terrible legacy to leave. And yet God is patient with Jonah. The story of Jonah is God's grace toward the runaways. One you expect, but the other you don't. In a weird sort of way, it's sort of the story of the prodigal father. There's one son who's totally rebelled, and one son who's quietly rebelled, and both of them the father loves. What do we take away? I think we got two lessons, and then we'll finish. These two lessons are very simple. Number one, uh, as we think about the life of Jonah, may we have pity, and may we have patience Toward other people. God wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants people in here to come to repentance. I know you're here on a Sunday night and you've got your brownie points and, and you're all good for the week. But there are some of you who have sin that you think is hidden and God's still waiting on you to repent. And He's patient with you. And he thinks, I mean, you think, well, enough time has passed. Nobody knows. It's no big deal. And God's still waiting for you to repent, just like he was Jonah. And there's a whole world out there that's still, that God's still waiting and hoping that they will repent. Um, the, the scripture says that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And he is willing to relent when there is genuine repentance. Now think about this. In the two groups of people, I guess one prophet and, and the, the godless city of Nineveh, who showed genuine repentance? Not the prophet of God. In fact, the more, the more merciful God was, the more angry the prophet got. 
May we never have such a spirit. Turn to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, I realize it's not in the book of Jonah, but I want us to remember these words as we think about our own lives and how our, our, our attitude should be. Peter here speaking about the day of the Lord, and he says this. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. That verse basically says God's concept of time and our concept of time is way, way different, infinitely different. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. I just want to back that up and just put the little do, 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 just back up the the, the truck and just catch that again. Because some of you missed it. You weren't paying attention. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but wanting everyone to come to repentance. I understand as Christians we are looking forward to uh, an eternal home, uh, to a heavenly home with a, a Savior who is from there, and we eagerly await that Savior. And sometimes we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I understand the heart in the moment, but listen to me now, hear me. The reason the Lord tarries is this very simple reason. Because he's patient. And he's just as patient with those who do not know him as he is with those who do know him or who should know him. And the next time you ask God to hurry up and come on back, you need to remember the heart of the Father wants none of his children in hell. And he waits on them Like he waited on us. And he might just be waiting on you and I to share the good news and to plant a seed like the gentleman I talked about this morning in their hearts. Because he knows once that seed is planted, it will flourish and the harvest will be 30, 50 or 100 times what was sown. The the next great preacher, modern American revival, might be your next door neighbor. And God's waiting on you to share the old, old story. May we, may we have pity and understand that God is patient. And the second thing is, the second lesson is to have some perspective. God needs you to be more concerned about the big things than the little things. I'm serious. I got this Bermuda grass in my yard. I'm getting old now because I'm getting consumed with grass, okay? And I'm spraying it every couple of weeks and I'm trying to keep the, and I'm, and I'm doing this and I'm walking through the yard, and I've got my grubbies on, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm spraying this nasty chemical, which is supposed to get rid of the Bermuda grass, but keep my fescue grass. And I'm walking through and have this thought. I don't know if it's from God or if it's from me, but it was this very profound thought. Holding the sprayer. What are you doing? You're worried about grass. You're worried about grass. That grass is going to be dead in six months. And you're worried about it. God forgive me for having so narrow a perspective. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you as well. May we, may we seek first his kingdom. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow or about kids' college funds or about the state of the economy or about who's going to be elected. For tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. May we, may what we worry about be only the things which God worries about. That's important, and that's where Jonah missed it. Right? He was worried about vines. He was worried about his own comfort. And he wasn't at all concerned about the souls of those Ninevites. And that's where God's heart was. God is really not too concerned with your comfort. He's concerned with the souls of men and women, his children. And he wants them to be in heaven with him. May we join him in that process. May we have the same pity that he does toward them. and May we have the same perspective that he does eternally. Tonight I want to invite you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can have the same opportunity to repent that the Ninevites did. That you can turn your heart and your life toward him. You can obey him by believing and trusting that he is Lord and doing what he said to do, but simply repent and be baptized. You can begin that journey tonight. And if you know Jesus, but you've sort of been more acting like Jonah, you've been a little complacent, you've been a little concerned more about grass than about the souls of men and women, may we all repent in the same way. And may we, until Jesus returns, not give up on bringing souls to Jesus. Whatever your need might be tonight, I'll be glad to help you in any way. Please meet me down front as together we stand and sing.